Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The firing of Jeff Sessions puts the future of the Mueller investigation front and center once again. Let's talk about what acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker means for the future of the Mueller investigation. With me is Natasha Bertrand. She covers national security and the intelligence community for The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about Matt Whitaker and what his thoughts are on the Mueller investigation, because his track record has become an issue. Absolutely. So Matt Whitaker was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Iowa. He was appointed by George W. Bush, um, and he held that position for about five and a half years. So he did serve in the Justice Department um, up until Obama was elected in 2009, at which point he resigned from his position. And he went into private law practice. He worked at a law firm and he quickly became a pundit, essentially, on CNN. And that is where he started kind of railing against the Mueller investigation, um, saying that Mueller had gone too far by investigating Trump's finances, by saying that he was on the verge of crossing a red line. He's indicated in tweets that he believes that Mueller's investigators are a lynch mob. Um, And he's also kind of opined on the air on CNN about, you know, the idea that if Jeff Sessions were to leave, then whoever his replacement is could essentially hamstring Mueller's investigation by just cutting off his budget. So fast forward. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, all these things has drawn the attention of Democrats who say that he should recuse himself. Um, from the overseeing the Mueller investigation, but he seems to have no intention of it. The Washington Post has a report out that says Whitaker intends to to stay in charge of the Mueller investigation. What does that mean? And that's not necessarily surprising, right? I mean, I find it very difficult to believe, as do you know most reporters who cover this day to day, that Trump would have hired someone for this position who had not already told him privately that he would not recuse himself from the Russia investigation. That is exactly why Trump was so furious with Jeff Sessions over the last year and a half is because he immediately stepped aside from the Russia probe um, because he was advised to do so by Justice Department ethics officials. But now, you know, Whitaker has been he kind of has a, a dual conflict of interest here where he's been appointed to this position by the president after saying for months that he believes that the Mueller investigation has essentially grown outside of the bounds of its original mandate. So what we are also seeing is that Whitaker has told associates or his close associates believe anyway, that he would not comply with a, you know, with a request from Mueller to subpoena the president. And that has been top of mind for the president and his lawyers over the past year, because one of the final stages of this investigation will be an interview, either sit down or written with Mueller's team. Well, what does this mean for the future of the Mueller investigation then? Does, does if this guy, uh, I mean, he apparently has the ability to, if, if he gets a report, not make it public. There are all sorts of different scenarios that could play out here. 
Yeah, so he is essentially Mueller's boss now. So he has basically complete control over the future of the investigation. If Mueller came to him and said, I want to issue this indictment, then theoretically Whitaker could say no. Um, he would have to have a pretty good reason for doing that. And if he were to decline Mueller's request to charge someone, then he would have to explain his reasoning to Congress later. So there is kind of a check built in there. Um, but as far as, you know, the budget for Mueller's investigation, Whitaker is also in charge of that now. So he could have a lot of say over whether or not Mueller's probe gets funding. And if Mueller were to be completely hamstrung in this probe, there is a possibility that it's a it's kind of a long shot possibility, but there is a possibility that he could resign in protest, for example, which would lead to, you know, a whole other set of consequences. But I think that before we get too far along this path of, of considering, you know, the idea that the Mueller investigation might be completely, um, you know, just just go off the rails because of Whitaker's appointment, you also have to remember that Mueller has farmed out a lot of this investigation to various offices across the country, um, including the Southern District of New York and in Washington, D.C. So there are various elements of this investigation that are protected in case he were to, you know, uh, be hamstrung in any significant way by Whitaker. You mentioned the interview as being something the president uh, might not want to do with the special prosecutor. Are there other indictments that are uh, still out there that might come down that the president might be afraid of and want to squash? Yeah, so Roger Stone, Trump's longtime associate confidant, has said publicly that he does expect to be indicted by Mueller. He doesn't. He hasn't said why he expects that, but of course he has been very, very closely scrutinized by Mueller and all of his associates, virtually all of his associates, have been interviewed by Mueller's team and have been brought before the grand jury to testify. There's also Donald Trump Jr., Trump's son, who has been telling friends in recent days that he expects to be indicted by Mueller, perhaps for lying um, to Congress about his interactions with his father during the campaign about that now infamous Trump Tower meeting where they met with the Russians. Um, so there are a number of things here that Trump could be worried about. One of the biggest things, I think, is that, you know, uh, Whitaker has said that examining Trump's business dealings would cross a red line. The Trump organization was subpoenaed by the Mueller team, but the Cohen um, charges were farmed out to the Southern District of New York. And Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, is also being questioned by the Southern District. So any kind of inquiry into Trump's business dealings has already been kind of taken care of and is in the Southern District's purview. But with regard to Donald Trump Jr. and Roger Stone, they are still very much in Mueller's crosshairs, and that could be a big concern for the president. I'm talking with Natasha Bertrand. She covers national security and the intelligence community for The Atlantic. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll hear from some of the people featured in a new film about Muslims that serve in the U.S. military. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about public opinion on this because there's a lot of um, – and, and Congress, the, both – you know, seem rather concerned about uh, what's happening with the Mueller investigation. There's organizations out there like uh, March for Truth and Indivisible that are scheduling protests. There's like 30 mm -hmm. some protests in Illinois today, tonight, and all across the country, people are going to protest as if um, as if this is the end of the Mueller investigation. Um, it, what can public opinion do here? Yeah, so a lot of people across the country are considering this kind of the emergency, you know, break glass moment 
when we're seeing the Mueller investigation kind of derail before our eyes. I don't know if we can say that for sure, because Whitaker will now be surrounded by a Justice Department careerist who will tell him about various things that that Mueller has found. And, you know, he will have some kind of um, responsibility to adhere to DOJ guidelines. And I don't expect him to go completely rogue. But people across the country are very concerned that Trump could be trying to avoid a subpoena, could be trying to, um, you know, ease the pressure off of his son, Donald Trump Jr., off of Roger Stone, and that that's why Whitaker was appointed now and why Jeff Sessions was forced to leave in the middle of the week, even though he wanted to leave by Friday. Friday, of course, is the day when most indictments drop. Um, but but yes, I mean, people, big organizations that have been preparing for this moment pre- are pre- like preparing for the idea that Mueller could be fired, preparing for the possibility that he is ousted, are now mobilizing at this moment because they see this as just as dangerous. And again, I don't think we have any reason to be that concerned right now. I think that his past comments, Whitaker's past comments in public, are definitely a reason to be skeptical of why Trump chose him for the job. But there's no evidence right now that he will actively take steps to undermine the investigation. But there is a big, big movement out there where if he does, then this is one way to let the Justice Department know that everyone is watching um, as well as the press. The press has been keeping a very close eye on this. One of the things the president keeps talking about, and he did it in the campaign, maybe for campaign purposes, but indicting Hillary Clinton. He seems to think that there's just as much on Hillary Clinton as there is on him, and, and uh, the attorney general should be going after Hillary Clinton. Is there any chance Mr. Whitaker would do something like that? That's music to Trump's ears, right? I mean, Matt Whitaker has really kind of hit all of the kind of partisan talking points that the president has in his rallies and speeches over the last three years. Um, it's possible. Again, he is the act. He's the attorney general for all intents and purposes right now, and he has complete and total control over the nation's law enforcement um, officers and over the entire Justice Department. So if he wanted to, say, appoint a second special counsel to investigate whether or not Hillary Clinton should be, you know, whether or not that investigation should be reopened, then he could. Um, you know, the whether or not he actually takes that step, a step that Jeff Sessions was very reluctant to take and which he ultimately decided against, um, remains to be seen because, of course, Hillary Clinton is not a public figure anymore. She's not in office. Um, so it would be might be considered a waste of resources, something that would just be purely political at this point. Um, but he certainly, his past comments on, you know, the, the notion that Hillary Clinton should have been indicted, even though prosecutors determined that there was not a high enough bar for that, just puts him on kind of the same partisan playing field um, as the president. What can Congress do about this? There was a senator on Morning Edition this today talking about the Republicans who are concerned about this and they could, in theory, put legislation in place that would protect the Mueller investigation. Yeah, so far they've declined to do that. There has been legislation put forward that would allow Mueller to challenge his firing in court if he were, in fact, fired. But that has not been... Um, voted on, and it's unlikely that it's actually going to be, because the reaction among Republicans in the Senate 
has actually been broadly just kind of a collective shrug. There's really no outrage among Trump's supporters and allies in Congress who now make up the bulk of the Republicans in the Senate um, in response to Sessions firing and the appointment of Matt Whitaker. Now, Democrats have, you know, having control of the House now or having control of the House in January, they can subpoena Whitaker and they probably will. They will call him to testify at, at the very least um, before the House in January and they will grill him and they will say, you know, what are your intentions for the Mueller investigation? And they can also they've also actually sent document preservation requests to the Justice Department already in preparation for, you know, subpoenaing those documents in January um, as it relates to any kind of communications that Whitaker has had with members of the Justice Department or even with the White House at this point um, about the Mueller investigation. Um, one last thing, and I guess this question is a little unanswerable, but did Mueller misplay his hand? Could he have finished with his report before the midterms, gotten it out there, slipped it to Jeff Sessions, and by waiting until after the midterms and you know doing the right thing according to the rules, did he offer the opportunity to the Trump administration to squash this thing? Yeah, I think that there's there's a school of thought that could that could definitely argue that, but he didn't want to repeat the mistakes that James Comey made in the days leading up to the election. He did not want to have any kind of impact on on the midterms in a way that Jim Comey will now go down in history for having, you know, reopening essentially the Clinton email investigation just 11 days or 9 or 11 days before the election. So there was also the question of, you know, Democrats were expected to win the House. And so giving this report over to what would have been essentially sessions, but then giving that report to what essentially would have been a lame duck Congress is also something that wouldn't have been uh, preferable. And then there's also the final issue, which is that Mueller would not have just being, you know, knowing him, having talked to people who know him, he would not have wanted to be under this pressure to finish his report on such a wide ranging and extensive and complicated investigation um, just because the midterms were upcoming. So I think that anyone you talk to would say that he made the right decision here to not be influenced at all by the midterms. Natasha Bertrand covers national security and the intelligence community for The Atlantic and is writing about the firing of Jeff Sessions and the Mueller investigation. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about everything that's happening. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a new film that talks about Muslims in the military. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Veterans Day is just around the corner tomorrow night, and on Friday, there's a showing of a film and a conversation that might make you think more deeply about who serves your country. The film is Loyalty Stories, and it's a series of short profiles of Muslims who've served in the U.S. military. David Washburn is the filmmaker. He's here, and so is Megan Everett. She is director of veterans programs with the McCormick Foundation, and they help support the project. Great to see you both. 
Thank you for having us. David, you have been doing a lot of filmmaking around Muslims over the years. Tell me about the projects you're involved with. How did this happen? My last documentary was about the first mosque that was burned down in U.S. history. It was in 1994 in California. A group of Pakistani farmers built a mosque on their farmland. Late one night, it was burned down. And the film really traces the story and the interfaith healing that happened after the fire. And if I can link that story to where I am now, it really is about bringing me as a person, as a filmmaker, as an American, into conversation with important, timely stories. So that story focused on Islamophobia and hate crime. And this one is focusing on service in the military, post 9-11 during these very, very long wars, but also during a time of rising Islamophobia. So for me, it's a way to have a conversation about how are Muslims serving this time and how are they working through serving a country, defending a country that does not always defend them at home. You have some pretty powerful stories. The film you're showing is about 25 minutes long. And there's about six stories packed in there. And there's some powerful ones. You start right off with a 9-11 story, and it's really something. How did you find these people? In 2016, I attended the Pentagon Iftar. And Iftar is the celebration at the end of the day uh, for Ramadan. There's been Iftars at the White House. There's been Iftars at the State Department. Well, the Pentagon also hosts an Iftar for about 200 people, most of whom are, are Muslim and serve in the military. The Secretary of Defense came and spoke at this event. I was invited. I met many, many people there, and one person came up to me and said, you know, the one story I really think you should tell is of this woman, Manal Azat. Manal Azat was born in Egypt. She came to the United States as a young girl. She was a civilian engineer for the Pentagon. She was there on the day the Pentagon was hit, ran out of the building, with smoke around her, thought she was going to die, but survived. She came back to work on rebuilding the Pentagon, but not just the entire Pentagon. She worked on designing the space where there's this interfaith chapel. And you'll see in the film, there are Muslims that now pray at this chapel. And for her, it was this extremely powerful moment of healing where she was able to say, out of this wreckage, I was able, as a Muslim who worked at the Pentagon, I was able to rebuild and create peace again here. And now Muslims are there praying as they are allowed to do in the military. Also with us is Megan Everett, Director of Veterans Programs for the McCormick Foundation. She was a surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I didn't know the McCormick Foundation had a veterans program project. What are you guys doing? Well, the McCormick Foundation was formed in 1955. Colonel McCormick is our legacy. He served in World War I, so we've always supported veteran issues we started a veteran-specific program around 2010 and uh, really started to build out specific strategy um, around that program in 2014. Why would you want to support this film? Well, we do a lot of direct service support um, with our grant making, but we also look to create uh, places where people can have a dialogue around the experience of serving in the military. There's a big military-civilian divide, we call it, only 1% of the population is actively serving and 7% of our population are veterans. But the veteran population is very diverse. We represent all religions, ethnicities, races, gender, LGBTQ. And when we were approached by David and Kartemquin about this, we thought this is a really great opportunity to bring a population of veterans to the forefront to really have a thoughtful discussion about what it means to serve and what it means to serve when you're a Muslim veteran. 
I'm talking with David Washburn. He's the filmmaker of Loyalty Stories and Megan Everett. She's with the Veterans Programs with the McCormick Foundation. And coming up after the break, we're going to have our Global Activism Series, and we'll be talking about an innovative way for Ethiopian orphans to find a family. Uh, Well, we want to talk with a couple of the people who have served and are going to be in the conversation on Thursday and Friday night. Uh, Nate Turani is here. He's a Navy veteran from the elite U.S. Navy Presidential Honor Guard, and he's in the documentary Loyalty Stories. And Aisha Alamine is here. She's a U.S. Army veteran and served as an active duty uh, MP for five years, and she is currently an associate provost at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Nice to talk with you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Nate, I want to start with you. You're in the film, and you are in the Presidential Honor Guard. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, why you wanted to serve? Yeah, thank you. My family immigrated here from Iran, my grandparents first, and they've been here for about 50 years, and I'm the first to serve in the U.S. military in my family. I went to Iran in 1985 when I was a boy, um, and that was uh, in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. There was a lot of devastation there. There was a lot of trauma, and I felt like the saving grace that saved me was that I was an American. Uh, There wasn't anything that the Iranian regime could do to me um, because I was born in America. I think that's probably just the way I coped with it. So eventually we were able to get back home. I was there for about a year. And when we got back home, I had this deep and sort of abiding sense that I had a debt to pay back to this country. And so when I turned 18, I made the decision that I was going to serve in the military. And I did all my paperwork to serve in the military and went to take my oath to be sworn in. My mom was there. My aunt was there. My grandmother was there, all in tears, all supporting me. Yeah, it was an amazing journey. You end up in the Presidential Honor Guard. And for people who don't know what that is, it is the Honor Guard that is there before all the head of states when they visit uh, the White House. And that's an important position to be in. It is. It's one of the highest honors in the military. Um, We do ceremonies at the White House, at the Pentagon, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, Arlington Cemetery. And I was the first Iranian-American selected to serve in the unit and one of the first Muslims ever selected to serve in that unit. It's also an incredibly diverse unit as well. Um, We say there that we represent the Navy to the nation and the nation to the world. Um, And it's something that I talk about in the film as well. And all of the folks serving in that unit are representative of the core and the very best of who we are as a people, that diverse American society. Aisha Alamine is here, and as a U.S. Army veteran, you were an active duty MP for five years. Uh, Military police, what's that like? Yes, really funny story. When I first uh, decided to go into the military, it was more to kind of get away from my circumstance, right? And so I went into the recruiter, and they, like, did all the stuff, and I weighed in, and I did all that, and they kept saying, your MOS is MP and, and 95 Bravo. They were using letters and numbers. I had no idea what they were talking about. And my recruiter came to pick me up, and he said, so what is your MOS? And I said, I don't understand the language you all talk, right? <laughs> and then I showed him my paperwork. He said, oh, you're a military police officer. And I was like, oh, no, right? Uh, because coming from the south side of Chicago as uh, African-American, like my engagement with the police was not one that was positive. And now I had all of a sudden signed up to be one of them. So, um, yes, uh, being a military police, what it did for me is it took me out of um, what I had known to be 
into another world, right? Because my world was not very diverse, right? It was not diverse at all. Um, and then I went into a world where it was very diverse and where what I saw before as the enemy, I became that person. And so it really gave me a greater sense of self and a greater sense of what the world really is. And it's all of its beauty and diversity. Did you feel a sense of acceptance about being in the military? Was it hard? What were the difficulties for each of you? Nate, you want to start? Sure. I think particularly in the White House Honor Guard, there was a sense of we're happy that you're in this unit with all these other folks who are from all these different places that really highlights who we are as a nation. The unit cohesiveness, I think, was gelled in large part because of those differences. And it was because of this shared common purpose that we had in that unit. And and later, when I was recruited by the Defense Intelligence Agency, certainly my cultural knowledge and, and background and everything was also a part of that. It was also part of that diversity leading to a greater national security. Having Arabic, linguists, um, Chinese, Iranian, all those folks from different places making us stronger as a nation. Aisha? So interestingly, I was in the military before 9-11 happened, right? And so um, when I came in as a Muslim, it was just me coming in as a Muslim. It wasn't kind of a thing, and I can air quote thing, right? So I practiced my faith like everyone else practiced there. It wasn't something that distinguished me um, in that space. Actually, people made accommodations. So when they had like the 12 days of Christmas and everybody went over to different people's houses, I was invited as well. And they're like, before we make the margaritas, make sure you make a version for Aisha, (laughs) right? So it was just like we look out for each other because we're like one family. We're over here. I was in station in the Netherlands at that point. We are each other's family. I always felt accepted. One of the people in the film says his commanding officer just got up and said, hey, this guy's a Muslim. We're not going to have any problems with this. Did anything like that happen to you, Nate? Yes, absolutely. I've had Christian chaplains in the military who knew I was Muslim ask me if everything was okay, just check in with me um, if there wasn't a Muslim chaplain on our base. And they reached out to me just to let me know that they were there to listen to me in sort of a non-denominational sense. You know, when I first got my what's called Yankee White security clearance for the White House, um, which is a security clearance just past your top secret, they made a real big deal out of it in the honor guard. And they kind of called everyone together and said, hey, Nate, got his Yankee white, and he's the first Iranian-American to do so, and it was celebrated. I'm talking with Nate Tarani. He's a U.S. Navy veteran, and Aisha Al-Amin. She's a U.S. Army veteran. We're talking about the documentary Loyalty Stories. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment, and we will have a conversation about Ethiopian orphans and an innovative way for them to find families. I imagine part of the conversations you'll have tonight at the Cultural Center and on Friday at the Muslim Education Center in Morton Grove will revolve around why we can't be more civil in the rest of the country. (laughs) um, What do you see as the problem here? So it's interesting that you don't know what you don't know. If I just look at my kind of own experiential space, I did not understand diversity because that wasn't part of my world, right? We live in a very segregated space. And if you watch TV, you may think a certain way, right? If you watch certain news stations, you may think a certain way. If you watch uh, tweets, you may think a certain way. And so without being exposed to all of the diversity that we have in ways that are meaningful and authentic, it becomes challenging to take some of those ideas that have been put in you and have those challenged in a very different way. 
in the film, Nate, we have some film of you protesting the Muslim ban. How did you come to that place where you were, you were in the military and now you're out of the military and you're a protester? You know, when I first left active duty, and I think also when I was in the military on active duty, I looked at activists and protesters as being, I mean, I'll admit it, I looked at them as being un-American without asking myself why they're out there. What are they protesting? And that's something I talk about in the film. In wake of the Muslim ban, I felt that that flew in the face of the oath that I took when I joined the military. Um, We're a country that is based on religious freedom. We're a country that accepts people from all around the world. And because I felt that that flew in the values of why I served in the military, my activism was more an extension of my service rather than something apart from that. Are you optimistic about the future in this country? Very much so. I think that right now there's fear out there. But if you look, for example, in 2013, YouGov had a survey where 44% of Americans were um, questioning the loyalty of American Muslims. And I think now this is before a time where we you know, introduce the word Islamophobia out there and that this is something that is counter to our values. Now you're starting to see Americans from all backgrounds, all states, everywhere standing up and saying that religious discrimination is not something that this country is about or ever should be about. And I think that those values will continue to be embraced by the American people. There really is a brighter day on the horizon as we start to embrace each other. It's rough waters right now, but we're getting there. I mean, we're here talking about it with you right now. You've taken the time to have us here, and hopefully folks are listening to this, and maybe it's changing some perspectives. Aisha, how about yourself? If I'm being quite honest and candid, it depends on the day of the week. There are times when um, I turn on the TV and I see mass shootings and I see police officers shooting young black men in the back. And um, those times do not leave me hopeful. But there's also times where I see people coming together and helping those folks and using their words and their hands and their everything that they have to set us on the right course. And so um, for me, activism is a duty. Um, It is part of our obligation. It is part of our obligation when we see those things that are wrong to speak against them. And as a veteran, I have always been that person. I have always tried to um, use what I have to fight for what is just and what is right. So it gives me hope to know that some of the things that are happening are awakening people to speak at the voting polls, to speak your voice in every way that you can, to vote, to do all the things that you can to set us on the course that we know that we should be as a country. Aisha Alamine is a U.S. Army veteran. She served as an active duty military police for five years, and she's currently an associate provost at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Nate Tarani is a Navy veteran. He is from the elite U.S. Navy Presidential Honor Guard, and he is featured in the documentary Loyalty Stories, and the film will be showing tonight at the Cultural Center at 5.30. You are invited to come and take part and watch the film and have a conversation. And it's also showing tomorrow night at 6.30 at the Muslim Center in Morton Grove. It's an interfaith gathering, and we're certainly welcome to be there and take part in the conversation. And we've got a trailer of loyalty stories on our Facebook page. You can check it out at WBEZ Worldview on Facebook. Thanks a lot for joining us, and thanks David Washburn and Megan Everett for joining us as well. Thank you Thank so you. much for really having us.
Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll hear about an innovative way to get Ethiopian orphans a family. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. The Salamta Family Project helps young people who need a family find one. It's based in Ethiopia. Marissa Stam is the executive director of the Salamta Family Project, and Tamrat Kabedi is here. He's Ethiopia director. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us, Jerome. Thank you for having us. I wanted to ask a little bit about orphans in Ethiopia and the issue overall. How many are there, Tamrat? What's the situation? Is it worse than other places? We have over 5 million orphan and abandoned children in Ethiopia right now that needs a love of the family. And this need is urgent and it's visible. Like anyone can come and witness this need in Ethiopia. You mean you see young people on the street? Definitely. You see young people on the streets. And you go and see children, abandoned children, orphan children in the government orphanages, and that's overwhelming. And is the government, are there independent orphanages? How does most of the approach happen? There are government orphanages and there are independent orphanages, but majority of the kids are now left in the government orphanage in terrible situation. How bad is it? What's it like? There are government orphanages in Ethiopia that taking infants and also there are other orphanages owned by the government that have boys and girls above age eight. But in the infant orphanage, about five, six babies sleep in one crib. Now, the Salamta Family Project, where did it come from, Marissa? It it seems like, you know, there's an enormous issue with orphans in Ethiopia. Um, How did this happen? So our founder, Carol Stone, was an adoptive parent, and she recognized that there needed to be an in-country solution to the orphan crisis. And being an adoptive parent, bringing children into her own family, also recognizing that family is the best place for a child to grow up. And so she looked at every option that was currently out there in 2005 and tried to figure out how could we do this better? What could it look like to really replicate family on a larger scale for children? And so the Salamta Forever Family Program was born. What does that look like? Within our Forever Family Program, we bring together 8 to 10 children with a Salamta-trained mom, and they come together at one time. They move into a family home that is in a community in our neighborhood. You can't tell one of our Forever Family homes from a traditional home next door. These children and and this mom come together at one time, and the intent is that they grow up together. I mean, we're talking 10 to 20 years that this family is literally growing together just like your family or my family would. The fact that it is in-country, that it is community-integrated and family-based is really an innovative approach to the orphan crisis. Tamrat, tell me a little about the mothers and who they are and how you find people who wouldn't want to do this. This is a very interesting thing. Even the mothers are mothers who have been marginalized, like widowed or 
divorced or left behind on their own with children. So these mothers are found through good friends who would recommend them. This is not like a job, you know, it's a job, but it needs a heart and a love for these children. So we always get them through someone we know who would give us reference about that specific woman. And then there's a training program for them so that they can better deal with what is going to go down. Yes. When we have new moms come, they go through training on how to best serve these children because all these children that have come to Salamta have some sort of trauma. And it's from that perspective we address their issue. And these moms need to be informed of that approach. And they definitely will go through trainings. Even while they do their duties, we will always provide ongoing training for this mom. Marissa, tell me more about this process. It sounds pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible, especially to have the opportunity to watch our children grow up and watch our moms go from creating this new family home to raising children into adolescence. And, you know, we've been at this now for 12 years. And so we have children who have graduated from high school, who have gone into vocational programs and university, um, who are preparing to launch from our Forever Family program. One of the really important pieces is that our kids do not age out. Age for our children doesn't matter. It has everything to do with readiness. We want to make sure that our children are able to stand on their own two feet before they are launched from the financial support of Salamta. And how much is there for that family unit? How much support do you end up giving them? Our families are fully supported by our professional staff. So we currently have 10 forever family homes that are spread across a neighborhood. Our kids are fully immersed into their community. They attend local schools, uh, local churches. They're involved in local activities. And they're all within walking distance of our community center. In our community center is where all of our professional services are provided. So we have an education liaison. Um, Education is a key focus. Psychosocial support. Uh, We have a psychologist and a social worker. Health and wellness. Um, We have a clinic on site with a full-time nurse. And then spiritual and life skills development. So it really is a holistic approach to caring for children. So these families, the kids don't have to go get jobs. They just go to school. They do go to school. Now, we want to make sure that they have the life skills they need. So we encourage them to take part in their community. Maybe that does look like a part-time job for them, but it's very specific to each child. They aren't required to be bringing funds into the home. Their focus is to learn and grow and become productive citizens who can then become outstanding spouses who raise the next generation of children. We're talking about the Salamta Family Project. It's based in Ethiopia. Marissa Stam is executive director, and Tamrat Kabedi is the Ethiopia director. Tell us about a particular family that you're involved with there, Tamrat. We have this family called Haile Selassie House. Our homes are given after our emperors, previous emperors, or a town in Ethiopia. So we have a house called Haile Selassie. And in this house, we have about 10 children, which actually one of them just launched like last January. Mm -hmm. He launched out because he was capable of leading his own life. He owns a business. We have these three wheels, Bajaj, we call them Bajaj. And he, him and the family owns those transportation business. In fact, they just bought a new car just before I came 
they are moving on to a real car, actual transportation car. So that family is a good example in Salamta, where you see family working together, where brothers and sisters grow together, where brothers and sisters support each other for any life circumstance. So this family has worked hard to start that business as a family. And that young man who leads the family, he is the oldest there in the family. He's become like a big brother for kids in that family home. Even though he's launched out, he still comes and visits the family. He comes for holidays. He goes to have coffee with his brothers and sisters. And his brothers and sisters go out to help him in his business, too. Well, that's exactly what you'd expect from family, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I was reading about one of the young women who had a scholarship to the U.S. and came to the U.S. and went to a school. Is that common? That is very uncommon, actually. Uh, Yazina is the young woman who's currently in the U.S. Um, She does have a scholarship to Brewster Academy right now. She is a tremendous student. She is the youngest of three biological sisters who are a part of Salamta Family Project as well. And she has just always excelled in her academics. She has taken advantage of every opportunity that's ever been put in front of her. And she was given the chance to come to the U.S. through one of our partner organizations called She's the First, who helps to fund some of our girls' education. And when she came to the U.S., uh, she was introduced to some folks up in New England And through that whole experience, uh, the opportunity presented itself for her to come and be a part of a summer camp a year ago. Then as a result of that, was offered a scholarship to do her high school years here in the U.S. I know in Ethiopia, there's a standardized test that is a big deal and determines a lot about your future. How do the kids do on the test? Well, every kid is not the same. There are some kids who strive to get to universities, which we already have now. But there are others who would like to pursue on vocational training. So we have all kinds of vocational trainings that are given by government, colleges, and private colleges. So based on their grade results, some kids join university, and the ones who would like to join vocational training, they will be presented with what they would like to study, and they pursue what they like. I wanted to ask about your fundraising in the U.S., how you support the organization. What kind of things are you doing, Marissa? Well, the majority of our funding does come from private individual donors. And so when our supporters give generously, we are able to create forever families and help those kids be able to thrive. And this was all started in 2005 in the U.S., so there must be nodes of support around the, the U.S.? Absolutely. We have uh, tremendous supporters everywhere from New England down to Florida and over to San Francisco, up into Canada, several uh, over in Europe, and a lot of support coming from Ethiopians really supporting the work that's being done by Salamta. How strong is that, the Ethiopian communities? Have you met Ethiopian Americans here, Tamarat? In fact, we were at the Ethiopian Festival in Chicago. That's why we also came here to present what uh, Salamta is all about. And a lot of them had talked to me at that Ethiopian Festival saying they love it, like this is wonderful. And most of them wanted to come and volunteer in our English summer camp. Oh, that sounds great. Now, you yourself were an orphan growing up? Yes, I grew up in an orphanage about 275 kilometers away south to Addis. 
since I was six, I grew up in that orphanage till I was 18. And did you want to work with Salamta because of that experience, or how did that happen? Yeah, I saw on Salamta's website that says kids don't age out. And that was unusual. Like, that's something I never heard in the orphanage world. And that's what I have experienced. That When I was 18, I had to leave no matter what. So I kind of got interested and explored more what Salamta is doing. And I applied for the country director position. And and you went on to university and, and things. Yes, I went to universities. I, I had studied community development. And I've studied management in universities. So it got my attention about kids specifically not aging out. So I wanted to come and explore what that looks like. And a family concept was new to me because those aren't the vocabularies you hear in orphanages. So sure enough, I came in uh, in the first week that I was there, I saw that bond, that relationship in a family where kids were happy and kids are brothers and sisters in this program. So that was an amazing first experience and I love what I'm doing in Salamta and I'm glad that I'm taking part in this. I'm learning, but I also thought that I can contribute something from my experience, especially telling my stories to the children there to have hope that one day they would become somebody, someone with a family. I'm sure that when you talk to them, it's different than when somebody else talks to them. You've done it. Definitely, because I am telling them my story, my real story, and that captures their attention, and they are always eager to hear my stories. I know that Salamta does some work on preventing families from breaking up as well. That sounds like really next-level stuff. I'm sure that there are a lot of circumstances in Ethiopia where people give up their children because the financials are just too horrifying. How do you do something like that, Marissa? Well, we believe that prevention really is critical in getting upstream to affect the orphan crisis. You know, every study out there will tell you that the best place for a child is in a family, particularly the family they were born into as often as possible. Um, But when you're dealing with issues that are complicated by extreme poverty, um, that's where family breakdown begins to happen. And so working with other organizations who really specialize in prevention, who specialize in reunification and family strengthening, our Salamta Family Project Forever Family Model really should be the last best option for a child after reunification has been tried after kinship care has been tried, you know, bringing a child who's been separated from their biological parents into the family of extended family. But again, that requires family strengthening. And then domestic adoption also should be an option. But the reality is those three things are not always available to every child. And so when that's the case, that's where Salamta's Forever Family Program really steps in. And so we have a social worker who is working to make sure that that those other three areas are explored and taken care of before a child comes to us, knowing that a forever family placement is the right thing for that child. So you would end up spending resources to see children reunited with kin and the the rest? 
Absolutely. As often as possible, we want to make sure that children are able to grow up with their biological family. And sometimes that means that reunification is going to need to be possible because children have already been separated. But with that reunification, it requires family strengthening so that those families can be healthy, they can be strong, they can stay together. That isn't always possible. Uh, when that isn't possible and, and kinship reunification also isn't possible, then domestic adoption should be explored. Unfortunately, in Ethiopia, there really hasn't been domestic adoption uh, really cultivated in the culture yet because it's just not commonplace. And last year, international adoption was also shut down. So when we're looking at whether or not a child should come into and be a part of a new forever family, we want to make sure that everything else has been explored first for that individual child to make sure that it's the right thing. What do you think about the future for the Salamta Family Foundation? Do you have goals and and projects that you want to execute, Marissa? Absolutely. Um, We know that our Forever Family program is an innovative solution to the orphan crisis. We also know that with the shutdown of international adoption, there are many children who are in institutions right now who need the love of a family. And so with that, we need people who agree with us, who believe that every child deserves a loving family to come alongside us so that we can be in a position to create new forever families for the millions of children out there who really need that. The Salamta Family Project is on the internet at salamtafamilyproject.org, and it's S-E-L-A-M-T-A, familyproject.org. And you can get more information there and find out more about them. Thanks very much for joining us and telling us about it. Marissa Stam, Executive Director of the Salamta Family Project, and Tamrat Kabedi, Ethiopia Director for the Salamta Family Project. Thank you both. Congratulations on the work you're doing, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have film contributor Milos Stalik in, and he'll talk with the director of a new film about Maria Callas. And the director has an unusual approach. He lets her tell her own story in the film um, about Maria Callas. So hopefully you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Also, did you know you can listen to the Worldview program whenever and wherever you want? All you have to do is subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Or click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.